Hi, and welcome to The Horn, a podcast from the International Crisis Group. I'm Alan Boswell. Today, we have Michael Woldemeriam back on the show. Michael is a professor at the University of Maryland, and he is a senior fellow at the Center for Security and International Studies there. He's on the show to discuss developments in Ethiopia as well as with its neighbor, Eritrea. Michael, welcome back on the show. Good to be with you, Alan. So it's been one year since this Praetoria Agreement ended the war in northern Ethiopia, mostly in Tigray. At the time of this agreement one year ago, you had a broad coalition that the federal government had essentially forged and mobilized against the Tigrayans. You had Eritrea involved, you had neighboring Amhara and Afar regions also fighting against Tigray and the TPLF. So, you know, the federal government signs this deal. It surprised, I think, many uh, when it came. But, you know, these other actors, the Eritreans, the Amhara, they were not there at the peace talks. So there was obviously big relief at the time, but there was big questions on, you know, if it would hold. You know, obviously, there was a lot of skepticism that after such a bitter war, the two sides would actually stop fighting. But then I think on the on the back end of that, there was also concerns that, you know, an end to one war could prove the seeds and roots of future wars. And I think that's kind of the context, you know, we really want to dive into. Now you now have fighting in Amhara, which looks like a new a new war. You have these escalating Ethiopia-Eritrea uh, tensions. Let's go ahead and dive in one by one, and then we'll try to connect all these pieces. So let's start with the situation in Tigray. Uh, obviously, the peace deal did end that war. How safe does it look that peace in Tigray itself will at least continue to hold? I think, you know, off the top, it's, it is important to note, and, and you did allude to this, that, that in many ways, uh, Pretoria and its subsequent arrangements were, were a success. When this deal was signed in November of 2022, the war in northern Ethiopia was really entering a very dark chapter. Tigrayan defenses had broken down in the northwestern part of, of Tigray. Some, some key towns had been occupied places like Shire, Aksum, and, and there was a, a high likelihood or a real likelihood that coalition forces were going, to re- were going to retake many of Tigray's urban centers and towns, and that the, 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 the TDF would flee to the hills and, and wage sort of asymmetric warfare from that position. In that context, humanitarian conditions for Tigrayan civilians were likely to get much worse than they already were, and they were, they were horrible by that point in the conflict. And so, so Pretoria, Pretoria effectively stopped that scenario, and the break in fight fighting has has held for the most part. And so, you know, on, on that level, this is this is a real success. And you know, subsequent to that, in implementing Pretoria, the parties did things that were politically very, very difficult for them. Right? I mean, the TDF gave up its heavy weapons. You know, allowed for federal troops to enter Makela, control federal installations. The federal government, for its part, improved humanitarian access, you know, resumed core public services, you know, took the difficult step up in, 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 Ethiopian, in Ethiopia's parliament, federal parliament, to, to normalize, you know, re-legalize a TPLF. The, the two sides agreed on an interim administration. And generally, just the, you, you think back to the war, I mean, the rhetoric between the parties of the conflict was hot. That acrimonious rhetoric has, has cooled, I think, almost completely subsided. But I think there are obviously uh, challenges that many observers have pointed to. I think the humanitarian situation um, in Tigray is, is really still quite poor. There are recent reports of starvation deaths. As you know, the, the international community has 
particularly the United States, has suspended food assistance to Ethiopia. That's a compounding factor. And there is continuing disagreement between you know, federal authorities and uh, the U.S. government about how exactly to, to restart that food assistance. Uh, DDR uh, in Tigray remains complete, uh, incomplete. rather. You've got you know, thousands, hundreds of thousands of young people still under arms, and now it's worth here, I think, noting that, you know, Pretoria's timetable for the disarmament of, of light weapons was never really realistic. So we shouldn't we shouldn't be surprised. This is this is still a problem. And then, of course, you know, there's the question of, of frontiers. I mean, Tigray's western and northern frontiers remain contested, unresolved. There are reports of continuing human rights violations in western Tigray or Wilkite in the Tigray Eritrea borderlands. In, in these cases perpetrated by Amhara militia, Eritrean forces. These are certainly the allegations. And, and, and there's an IDP problem because of the displacement from these, these areas, a continuing problem. Now, more generally, I mean, you alluded to the coalition that, that prosecuted the, the war in the north, the federal government, a variety of Amhara militia forces, and then the Eritrean government. That coalition has fragmented in some notable ways, and, and we, could, we could get into that. But I think a key challenge our continuing challenge for Pretoria has been that this was a multi-sided civil war, and those that fought alongside the federal government had their own particular interests. And two of those parties, Amhara political forces and their trends, were not a party to the Pretoria agreement, and I think in many ways dissatisfied for it, dissatisfied with it rather. And so there certainly is a potential for renewed conflict between those forces and the Tigrayans, but indeed, again, as you noted earlier, there is conflict uh, between the Amhara and the federal government, or Amhara forces in the federal government, and the potential for conflict between the Eritreans uh, and the federal government, which I wouldn't say necessarily is a likely possibility, but it is a real possibility that needs to be accounted for. What, what's your sense of the relationship between uh, the Tigrayan elite, the uh, TPLF, the TDF top people, and Abiy and the federal government right now? Is it still quite testy? Is it something like a very tentative alliance? How would you characterize it? Yes, I mean, I, I would characterize it as as a, a tentative alliance. I mean, I think relations, particularly between the interim administration and the federal government, are functional. There are areas of tension that are being worked through, but 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 those areas of, of tension are, are real, and and I I do think separate the two sides. On the Tigrayan side, I mean, I think there are concerns about sort of the slow pace of implementation of Pretoria. They very much tethered themselves to the letter of Pretoria and want, at least their argument is, is wanted implemented in full. And so, for instance, on the issue of the disputed territories, Western Tigray slash Wilkite, I mean, I think they have concerns about the federal government's seeming inability uh, to get those territories transferred back to Tigray. The federal government has now recently said uh, that consistent with the constitution, their view will proceed with, with a referendum in those areas. So that I think, I think there is some, some concern on the Tigrayan side about where that, that whole situation ends up. Obviously, the humanitarian conditions overall are not great. And I think Tigrayan authorities feel like they could do with more support uh, in that regard. Concerns about, you know, in, in their view, you know, the positioning of air, air train forces into grand districts in the north, or about, or although there's some dispute about where exactly the air trains are. And I think a feeling in Tigray is that the federal government perhaps has not worked, worked in a robust fashion to get those forces out of Tigray. 
Accountability, I think, is another area perhaps where the Tigrayan leadership has has some concerns. I mean, they have not been particularly vocal about this issue because they don't want to run afoul of the federal government. But I don't think they were pleased by the disbandment of the ICRI mechanism, which basically internationalized the issue of transitional justice in the Ethiopian context. So, so I think that that is the, the sort of the the view perhaps of of the Tigrayan elite. And the, this is a quick summary. I think there are other things we could put on the table. You know, on the side of, of the federal government, certainly, you know, they're keeping an eye on, on disarmament. I mean, they've, they've embraced a very flexible schedule on this and I think do have some utility in, in uh, see some utility in maintaining a, a large Tigrayan force, infantry force, both in terms of the law and order needs of Tigray, but also in terms of potentially leveraging that force against, against other, other adversaries, potentially. This is somewhat speculative. But I do think, you know, my sense is that, that, that Addis does worry about elements, what they see as elements of the TPLF that, that are not as cooperative, are not willing to be as cooperative with the federal government, which they might view as sort of um, hardliners of the old guard and, and worry about its control, influence over the, administ- the interim administration and political structures in, in, across Tigray writ large. So I think that's an area, again, of concern for them, something they're following. I think with the interim administration itself, and of course, its, its leadership, I think the relationship with the federal government is, is, is okay, decent, functional. Hmm. Yeah. And so even though this disarmament timeline was in some ways the kind of heart and soul of the Pretoria Agreement, perhaps some mutual interest and in, in not having the disarmament fully fully take place. I think that's a key point. I think both sides had an interest in slow, ro- ro- slow rolling the disarmament process. Now, the, the other piece of this is that, you know, if you're going to do DDR, you actually have to fund it. And there is a real lack of, of resources, both local resources and, and resources from the international community to support disarmament, at least thus far. Although I think the United States and other parts of the, the international community have, have gestured at recently a willingness to support through resources, a DDR process. Mm. And what did Ethiopia get for signing this deal? Obviously, there was a lot of international pressure. I imagine quite a mix of carrot and sticks were put in front of Abi to try to get him to sign this peace deal. Has, has that worked out, do you think, in the eyes of Abi and those around him? Well, I think vis-a-vis threats that they perceived from Tigray, I think it's mostly worked out in the sense that Tigrayan resistance forces agreed to disarm, I mean, gave up their heavy weapons, have agreed in principle to disarm um, their infantry forces and, and light weapons, and also recognized the legitimacy of prime minister of the ruling party in Addis. I think that in that respect, that was a significant achievement for the prime minister and the federal authorities. But I think, of course, and we'll get into this, one of the key challenges is that, that Pretoria itself, and it's not only because of Pretoria, but Pretoria did cede other, other, did cede other conflicts across Ethiopia, particularly vis-a-vis the Amhara and potentially with Eritrea. Hmm. Okay, so... We've had conflict break out in Amhara between the federal government and Fano forces, defected uh, special forces from the Amhara government, basically forces who previously had been mobilized as part of this war against Tigray, now fighting with the federal government itself. I want to take listeners back a bit before we get into the specifics of now. What was the original relationship between the Amhara elite and Abi? Why why did they support him and, and why did they join with him to fight the Tigrayans? 
Yeah, I mean, I think there are, there are a couple of, of of different layers here. I mean, I think in some ways you have to go back to the to the 2018 transition and 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 the months that that followed months and in, in initial years that followed Abiy's rise. And I think it is true that that much of the Amhara political class made common cause with Abiy, helped the prime minister consolidate his power in order to contain, corral, and defeat sort of TPLF dominance of, of Ethiopian state structures. And so the, the alliance or the support of the prime minister, and of course, when we talk about the Amhara political field, we're talking about incredibly diverse space, right, in terms of ideological proclivities, in terms of identity. So, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm simplifying somewhat here. But, but I think the, the alliance, I think, was, was seated at that time. And certainly, if you go back to the internal EPRDF maneuvering that led to, to the prime minister's election. There was an alliance between, as you well know, Oromo and Amhara political factions. And so, so there was that, I think, preceding relationship. But certainly in the context of, of the Tigray conflict, I think one issue that mobilized many Amhara to back the federal government's military effort in Tigray were these, was a territorial dispute or territorial uh, sort of question over, you know, Western Tigray or sort of Wilkai, Tumera, a number of areas, and then also disputed territories in, in, in the area of Raya. You know, and so there were territorial, I think, claims made there. But I think, you know, stepping back from this, we have to understand, I mean, for the preceding you know, three decades, a TPLF had really been sort of the bête noire in, in Amhara politics. It had been, you know, the source of, at least in, in terms of perception, the source of of the Amhara's sort of overall political marginalization. And so there were these 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 inbuilt historical grievances. I think that were that were excavated and, and mobilized in the moment that the war broke out after November 2022. So now, certainly, it's also the case that amongst uh, again, generalizing here amongst amongst some Amhara, there is also a desire to reform, to dismantle the system of ethnic federalism that the TPLF and Tigrayan elites, uh, along with others, had helped install in the early 1990s. And I think that was also, you know, that was also a layer to this as well. Insofar as it was seen, you know, the, the war in Tigray was seen as a vehicle for dismantling ethnic federalism. So... How did the how, how did the Amhara elites respond to this Pretoria peace deal? I mean, we we've already alluded to the fact they didn't respond well, but but how did that play out? Well, I think there were there were a couple of concerns that emerge on the Amhara side in and around when the Pretoria agreement is signed. I mean, one one argument that is made is that there was not adequate representation of Amhara at the Pretoria talks. Now, of course, there were. Amhara representing the federal government that were were in the talks. But, you know, to the extent that many Amhara felt as if the federal government did not represent their interests, that was seen as as inadequate or insufficient. So I think that was 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 one issue. The other was real concern about the territorial question and a feeling that Pretoria might lay the basis for a transfer of these disputed territories back to Tigray, right? So the the, the area of western Tigray, Wilkite, and so on. And, you know, if you look at the letter of Pretoria, you know, Pretoria basically says that that these territorial disputes will be resolved through the Ethiopian constitution, federal constitution, the ethnic federal constitution, the constitution, of course, that, that many Amhara, many in the Amhara political class take issue with, distrust, and so on. You know, and I think that was another layer. And then the other piece was just, you know, a, a concern about what, you know, to the extent that Pretoria could translate into a sort of strategic alliance between 
the TPLF or Tigray more generally and the federal government. I think this this was a concern for some in the Amhara some of the Amhara political elite. You know, there is another layer to this, which is there had been certainly in the years leading up, you know, leading up to Pretoria and even afterwards, a lot of violence against Amhara civilians in other, in, in part, parts of Ethiopia outside of the Amhara region. Because the Amhara are a, a geographically very dispersed group, one of the most dis- dis- dispersed major ethnic groups in Ethiopia, and so there had been a lot of violence against Amhara in southern Ethiopia in the in the in the region of Oromia, and that in some ways had soured Amhara. That had been one of the things that soured Amhara political opinion on on the prime minister because they thought he was he was not taking the steps necessary to protecting those communities. And there was a way in which this is the, this is the, this is the view of some. This is not my view, but th- there was a view that Prosperity Party was increasingly was increasingly a front for Oromo political interests. And so you know you put all that together and you get Pretoria and you get you know of course you, there are some real grievances and concerns that, that come out of that. Now we could you know I could say one other thing, which is that after Pretoria, I think it's earlier this year, maybe April March of this year. The, the federal government announces a plan to effectively disarm regional forces and incorporate them into, into the overall national security architecture. And that really alarms uh, many uh, in the Amhara region. Um, and it alarms them because they're looking at the disarmament process in Tigray and basically saying, well, the Tigrayans are still armed. You know, why would we, why would we, we, why would we be disarmed, right? And of course, you know, from Abi's perspective, the federal government's perspective, they had built up the various Amhara Fano militia um, during uh, the war in the north. And, and after that war, I think, had a real interest in sort of reining those militia in. And so disarmament from their perspective made sense, but it, it created a lot of concern, I think, in the Amhara side. Mm. So, so how did we lead from this situation up until war? And what is it, you know, what is the current situation in, in Amhara? Yeah, well, I think the really key inflection point is this decision to to disarm regional militia, which, again, as I recall, I have to check the t- dates, was really, I think it was April, March, April of, of this year. Yes. You know, and that, that I think, is the, the sort of proximate, that's a trigger point, right, for, for conflict. The various Amhara militia, which are, you know, we're talking about a very diverse constellation of, of militia forces. This is not really a, a coherent thing, but there is a sort of broad rejection of this disarmament plan. And, it, and it, it's that point that we see sort of direct conflict, although there had been incidents of, of sort of military altercations between Fano militia and, and, and federal forces before. And I think since that time, the conflict in Amhara has, has proven to be, this is my assessment, has proven to be pretty intractable. In August, you had the, these various militia forces penetrate some key towns and cities in the Amhara region, places like Gondor, Bahadar. And, and the federal government, I think, has had real difficulty putting, putting down the rebellion. Again, it does seem like in the absence of some sort of political settlement, an, an, intractable, an intractable conflict. Uh, first of all, I mean, the Amhara region is, is large. There are many people there. It does seem as if the rebellion has a, a significant degree of, of, of public support, from what I can tell, at least uh, among Amhara within the Amhara region. These are well-armed and well-trained militia forces. They had been built up again, as I noted before, to a significant degree during the war on Tigray, so, so fairly battle-hardened forces. 
And of course, you know, the federal government for its part is fighting conflicts in other parts of the country, including a very significant security challenge in the in the Oromo, Oromo region, particularly Western Oromia in, in, in the Walegas. Um, but even beyond it, right? One one question is, what is the ceiling of this rebellion? You know, I'm not I'm not sure that that the rebellion necessarily poses a mortal threat at this juncture to the ruling party in Addis or those who occupy state power in Addis. And there are many reasons for that. One, I think, to, to pose a, a, a challenge to federal authorities in Addis, you know, they would need to build alliances with other militia forces in other parts of the country. And I think that's a continuing uh, challenge from the Amhara perspective. Uh, but again, certainly this appears to be an intractable rebellion. There also is the Eritrea side of the equation and speculation about about various kinds of support that the Eritrean state might be uh, providing to Amhara forces. Um, but again, that's, that's more speculative, but it's an, an angle, I think, to be explored. How much of this do you think was in some ways unavoidable? I think people see, for instance, the Amhara upset at the peace deal and worried that this disputed land, which which they seized from the Tigrayans, might go back to the Tigrayans. Meanwhile, the Tigrayans are concerned that it isn't being given back to them. You know, a lot of this looks very zero-sum and, and almost like a no-win situation, but then could Abi have managed this situation better? Was this, or was this conflict, you know, did it, did it look inevitable to you? It's a, that's a very tough question, Alan, but it's a, it's a good one. I mean, I think, you know, I think Ethiopia, and I've, I've always said this, I mean, Ethiopia's uh, challenges are, are beyond a single person or, or, or a single government. I mean, this is a country at this juncture that is, that is structurally unstable. And certainly it, it was always going to be very difficult. It will always be very difficult, I think, for the federal government, for the prime minister to kind of strike bargains with multiple constituencies across the country that are ideologically and historically diametrically opposed to one another. So certainly as Abi pursued peace in Tigray, sought to consolidate that peace through Pretoria, it was going to create a reaction in the Amhara region, right? The the federal government is now, as I understand, engaged in in talks uh, with the OLA um, in Tanzania, I believe, Zanzibar. Again, you can confirm that. But that's obviously going to complicate the prospects for political settlement in in the Amhara region if if the federal government decides to go that route or some juncture. And so it's a very I think it's a very difficult situation. Now, I, I don't think I'd go so far to say as, you know, the you know, the Amhara reaction, you know, response or the conflict on Amhara was sort of an inevitable response of of Pretoria. You know, I think there are probably some steps that could have been taken to reassure the Amhara, even as the federal government sought to fully commit to Pretoria. But there's no doubt that that reconciling central government policy towards all of these various constituencies, again, that have been historically uh, opposed to one another, have different historical narratives, different visions of what Ethiopia should be in terms of basic structures like uh, federalism, the constitution. It's, it, it's always going to be very challenging. Yeah, there's a lot more that we could get into there. And I think it's just worthwhile to, to just note that Abiy, since he came to power, has now, you know, faced, still faces this rebellion in, in Oromia. Uh, we also hear from those talks, you know, there's a lot of optimism um, that we, we could see a, a, an overall peace deal there soon. But but he had this uh, revolt in Tigray. Now he has this revolt in Amhara. So in very short order, he's faced major uh, sort of insurgencies from, you know, really the three most powerful, uh, politically powerful communities in, in, in Ethiopia. Um, and so this sort of turmoil continues. And Alan, if I could just sort of weigh in with one one point, I mean, because I think I've given... You know, might, some might say I've given a fairly charitable sort of analysis of, of the predicament the federal government faces, 
vis-a-vis reconciling its policies towards, you know, the various ethnic groups and constituencies across the country. You know, I think some might also say there's a real way in which the federal government, the prime minister, those that occupy state power in Addis benefit uh, from some of the, the friction, fragmentation, division between, you know, Ethiopia's various sort of key ethnic constituencies. So, I mean, that's also something that has to be, in fairness, I think that's something that also has to be be put on the table. And some would argue that that those that occupy central state authority in Addis are, are instrumentalizing, weaponizing some of those fissures. You know, we do have to consider that factor as well. So we'll get back to Ethiopian politics in a second, but um, how did Isaias respond to the peace deal in Pretoria? So, I mean, I think we have to disentangle some of their official responses from sort of what they were thinking and saying uh, privately. But I think, you know, overall, um, there was a great deal of concern um, in Asmara about uh, Pretoria and the Pretoria Pretoria arrangement. Um, And I think, you know, one of the issues was that, you know, the the Eritrean state, the Eritrean leadership, President Isaias, were quite committed to the TPLF's sort of full de- defeat and, 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 and elimination. And to the extent that Pretoria, and Pretoria did do this, right, to the extent that Pretoria preserved the TPLF as, as a political force in Tigray, and, and I would argue today, you know, still the governing sort of power in Tigray, um, this, this, this was this alarmed size and, 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 and sort of explains his, his opposition to Pretoria. I mean, now, I think you know, in terms of public rhetoric or sort of public signaling, I think the Eritrean government is saying sort of it's, it's reconciled itself to Pretoria and doesn't appro- oppose Pretoria per se. But they do have concerns about demobilization, of course, a slow, slow demobilization process because they see, you know, this large Tigrayan force as being, as being a threat to them. Um, so, so I think that, you know, that's the overall, that was sort of the overall sort of response or, or feeling about about Pretoria, one of concern, some alarm. There are, of course, reports that, that they have not fully pulled back from, you know, from territory, from a number of districts in, in northern Tigray. Although, you know, this is complicated by the fact that the Eritrea-Tigray border is, is itself disputed. And, and so that's, that's, a, that's certainly, that situation is certainly a bit of a mess. So, so I think that's a broad response. Now, it, the, I, I think Pretoria did also create some tensions between Abi and Isaias. Maybe it's too strong to say Isaias regarded Pretoria's betrayal, but it's certainly not the direction that, that he wanted to, to, to take the conflict in. He certainly was not happy with Abi. And I think, you know, Isaias gave an interview not long after Pretoria, where he basically said that Pretoria had interrupted, you know, interrupted their military offensives and operations. And so he certainly was not, not happy with, with Abi and the backers of, international backers of Pretoria for that reason. And so it's it's widened, I think, the gap between Addis and Asmara. But it's important to note that the gap had already been widening uh, between Addis and Asmara prior to Pretoria. You know, there I think there were tactical and strategic differences about how to prosecute the war in Tigray. You know, the president I think is on has has said or implied that he was not happy with the pullout of federal forces from Tigray in the summer of 2021. So, you know, I think there are, there are tensions that had that had popped up between the two countries or two governments in the course of the Tigray War in terms of how to actually fight the war. As, as we move on into, into the post-Pretoria period, of course, you know, I think there are concerns in Addis about the relationship between, between the Eritrean government and Amhara militia. And then layer on top of that, of course, you know, some of, some of Abdi's discourse uh, around the Red Sea. Yeah. Um, last month, 
the federal government released uh, this recording of a speech made by Abi, I believe, uh, in June. It was definitely months early, but released this recording of Abi giving a very long speech, basically saying Ethiopia has an imperative to get access to the sea, that it's a power that's too big to, to be landlocked, essentially. And obviously, the neighboring coastal countries haven't received this very well. But how do Somalia, Djibouti, Eritrea, you know, how, how did regional capitals really think about this when, when Abi sort of made these remarks? Yeah, well, certainly from on the part of Djibouti and, 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 and Somalia, I mean, there were there were officials from both countries that came out and, you know, rejected, you know, rejected these claims or some of the arguments that were, were being deployed in, in, in the in the video that, that you reference. They're on record, I think, in that respect. And, and again, are sort of concerned about about what they see as, as the federal government's posturing on, on this particular question, this issue of, of sea access. You know, I think the dynamic with Eritrea is, is, is a bit different. It's, it's more complex. And, and I think the, the concerns in Eritrea are, are, are heightened in part because, you know, at one point, um, Eritrea was part of Ethiopia, right? And so when you start making, and, you know, Ethiopia had uh, control of, of Eritrean ports and Asab and Masau and, and used it as their own. And so, you know, I think that, you know, when you start talking, when Ethiopia talks about or the federal government talks about sea access and historic access to, to the Red Sea, specifically, you know, that that causes a particular kind of alarm, I would I would argue, in Eritrean circles. And so, you know, and on top of that, of course, you've got these pre-existing tensions between Addis and Asmara. You know, and again, this is a bit speculative, but, you know, some that have, you know, there, there's, there was a buildup to the public release of, of this video on the Red Sea, you know, that, you know, government officials in, in Addis have, have been, you know, privately making arguments about the need for access to the Red Sea and, um, you know, and, and at certain junctures might have, might have implied that Eritrea was, you know, was, was, was the, the most likely or probable case, you know, case for, you know, for Ethiopian access to the sea, perhaps Zela in Somaliland as well. And so, so the point I think I'm making here is I think this discourse around the sea resonated, not resonated, but was received in, in a, a, a particularly, w- w- caused a particular, particular concerns and worries on the Eritrean side. And so I think there's a potential for conflict between Eritrea and Ethiopia in this domain that, that, that it doesn't necessarily apply to Djibouti and Somalia. That's, that's, that's my take, uh, at least. Although we could get into the likelihoods of, likelihood of conflict. I, I don't necessarily think conflict between Eritrea and Ethiopia at this juncture is likely, um, but it's a, there's a potential. We'd been hearing all year, really, that this issue of of getting access to the sea, you know, that 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 Abi did see this as a legacy issue, and this was this was something that would be, you know, increasingly forthcoming. Um, but but what's your sense of the timing of, of why push this? You know, obviously there's all this turmoil we've talked about in domestic uh, politics and uh, the relationship with. Eritrea has been rocky. Why? Why make this push now? Yeah, it's a it's a good question. I mean, of course, I mean we we do have to recognize that you know partly what the federal government or Prime Minister Abiy is doing is sort of elevating earlier discourses about sort of Ethiopian access access to the sea from particularly from the imperial era. You know, in the you know in the nineteen you know late nineteen forties nineteen fifties when when Ethiopia you know Ethiopia made very similar arguments you know under in in the imperial era in terms of sort of access to the sea and and that paved the way for their control of of Eritrea of course you know and 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 indeed you know earlier earlier on in in his prime ministership the prime minister had kind of gestured at a Red Sea agenda 
you know, this whole idea of building an Ethiopian Navy with, you know, perhaps some French assistance. I mean, so this, so I think, you know, I say this because, you know, as you indicate, this had sort of been, these ideas had been percolating for a long time. I mean, it is interesting that they've now been brought to a head at this juncture, that they've been elevated in some way. And there are a lot, you know, there are competing explanations. I won't take a position on any of them, but I'll, I'll, I'll lay some of them out. I mean, one is simply, you know, some would argue this is sort of a politics of, of, of distraction. And that's not to suggest, of course, that Ethiopia doesn't have real port needs and, and sea access needs. I mean, th- there, are, there are some legitimate issues, I think, undergirding this. But some argue that this is a question of, of you know, of distraction, right? Given, in, you know, the internal conflicts across the country, the government might be trying to sort of mobilize nationalist a nationalist impulse or nationalist sympathies. And, and more narrowly, some argue that, that because the idea of Red Sea access has sort of historically resonated, particularly amongst the Amhara, so the, the older Amhara political class, that, that, that the prime minister might be deploying this to sort of bring this community on, back on side. Now, I think one issue with that explanation is that I don't think it's particularly effective. I mean, I, I don't get the sense that this discourse around the, around the Red Sea is necessarily mobilizing Amhara political support in favorable ways. I, I, don't, I don't know if those appeals are really working, if that's, if that's the actual uh, ambition. You know, another explanation might simply be that this might be kind of muscular signaling to Eritrea and the region that, that you know, that, that Ethiopia, that the prime minister is kind of re- reasserting himself as a regional force. You know, the feeling might have been Ethiopia over the preceding couple of years had ceded too much regional influence to other countries, perhaps Eritrea, perhaps, you know, even Kenya. And that some of this is kind of signaling, sort of muscular signaling that, 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 that Ethiopia is, in fact, uh, a regional player. And a lot of that signaling perhaps might be vis-a-vis Eritrea. So I think that might be another um, explanation. You know, and then, you know, then there's just... You know, you could also take, you know, the, the prime minister, you know, the, the rhetoric and the prime minister's position at face value and say that, look, like, you know, they, they've drawn the conclusion that that port access. And I'm not saying this is a correct conclusion, but this drawn they, this is their view that, you know, that uh, Ethiopia desperately needs port access at the moment. I mean, port access, I mean, control or something close to, to full control of, of, of their own port. Um, and, are, and, and are deciding to push it forward at this juncture, particularly in light of some of the ec- overall economic problems that the country is facing. I, I said earlier that I was, you know, that I, that I said that conflict between Eritrea and Ethiopia specifically is, is possible, but not necessarily likely. And I think one of the reasons it's not necessarily likely is that both, both parties simply can't afford conflict at this juncture. We've already talked about the various internal challenges that that the federal government faces across the country, the various nodes of internal resistance across Ethiopia. You would also need, I think, you know, Tigrayan, sort of the Tigrayan forces, the large Tigrayan force to kind of join in that potential, in a potential fight of that type. And it's not, it's not clear to me as yet that Tigrayans are, would necessarily, or the the TPLF, the leadership in Tigray, the interim administration would would mobilize behind that effort. I think there's there's war fatigue. There's also suspicion of the federal government. And on the Eritrean side, I mean, look, you know, Eritrea still is in some ways somewhat isolated internationally, although it's 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 not quite the predicament that they faced back, you know, in, in the 2010s. You know, obviously the economy, I think it's fair to say, remains moribund. You know, it's it's likely the case that they're, you know, Eritrea is still a small country. 
probably some manpower challenges within the Eritrean Defense Forces, you know, given the number, sheer number of Eritreans who have left, left the country over the last two decades. You know, and, and I think overall, you know, there's a feeling that, look, you know, there, there's probably a lot of, of risk, an international risk to getting into a fight with a big country like Ethiopia, right? I mean, the last time Eritrea and Ethiopia went to blows in 1998, you know, the long run effect of that was Eritrea ended up getting isolated in the region internationally. Now, the year 2023 is not, you know, the, the, the late 1990s, or early 2000s, mid 2000s. But, but, you know, I think sort of history is probably informing some of their perspective here as well. And so, yeah, and so I think that's, that's my view. So we need to keep an eye on this, obviously. I think a lot of people, you know, in the region, in the international community are worried about the potential for conflict, but, we're, but, but there's a lot of reasons for, for neither side to, to, to engage in open conflict. Of course, there always is the possibility of an inadvertent escalation. And indeed, <laughs> you know, just because war doesn't make sense in terms of our calculations of the interests of the parties doesn't mean it, it, it won't happen. And indeed, when, when Eritrea and Ethiopia went to war in 1998 over borders and economic issues, my sense is that that conflict was mostly inadvertent escalation. No one really anticipated it. No one really wanted it for the most part. Yeah, most of the conversations I've had with you know, regional officials, uh, diplomats who've been focusing on this, I think, I think, yeah, mo- most are concerned of, of the risk of uh, escalation and miscalculation. The upshot of this, of course, is that, you know, the, the international community is increasingly, Western countries, some countries in the Middle East are increasingly aware of this, of this point of tension. And I think that the hope is that given that awareness, they will sort of take concrete measures to bridge the divide between Addis and Asmara, or regional tensions more broadly, you know, so to the extent that there might be tensions between Addis and Kenya, or, you know, Addis and Somalia and Djibouti over some of these Red Sea issues. And indeed, there was a statement from Secretary Blinken, I think last week or, or the week before, on sort of Ethiopia, sort of the, the one year Pretoria anniversary, where, you know, he sort of suggests that, you know, we are, <laughs> implies that, you know, we're, we're aware of tensions between Eritrea and Ethiopia, and they, they need you know, they, you know, we need to work, these need to be de-escalated, that nobody benefits uh, from a conflict. And I think that's, that's the message that a lot of international diplomats are, are certainly sending privately. Now, I think one added layer or challenge here is that, you know, Eritrea's relations with the United States, with the West more generally, have not recovered. And so there is a bit of a challenge. I think they can, they can talk to Addis on this issue, although that's not easy, but, but it's not, you know, they're not necessarily in a position where they can necessarily talk to Asmara. And so in, in that context, you know, the Gulf countries, I, I think, are quite important. Thank you, Michael. Uh, as always, thanks for your time. I'll, I'll just note to listeners that um, uh, we didn't dive too much into the history of the Eritrea-Tigray feuding um, because we, we spent a very long episode already doing that in the archives. So everyone should go check that out. But um, thank you, Michael, for coming on. Good to be with you, Alan. Thanks for listening. The Horn is a production of the International Crisis Group. Crisis Group has also published a new briefing on the worrying situation in Amhara and how it relates to all these other national and regional dynamics, which you can find on our website. I'm Alan Boswell, and our producers are Mae Francis and Ida Holly Nambi. <laughs>